A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, Alarmy. Before we get started, we wanted to make sure you heard the big news. The Alarmist has joined Patreon. Patreon subscribers will get access to our content ad-free, as well as our aftermath post-interview discussion and final verdict. We'll also be putting out additional bonus episodes and other fun stuff. Here's a preview of Guest Alarmist, where I step aside and let a guest walk us through a personal tragedy, and together the Alarmist crew figures out who's to blame. This month, Adam Lustig discusses his 2003 telegram disaster. Sandy ran this telegram company, and another part of the business was uh, children's costumed characters for birthday parties, many of which I did. And uh, because, like Clayton said, Sandy didn't have the rights from Disney to like license the, to like advertise or promote the character as actual Mickey Mouse, as actual Minnie Mouse, she had to have alt names for all mm. of the children characters <laughs> that would clear <laughs> copyright. So it was Mr. Mouse, it was Ms. Mouse, Elmo was just the letter L dash Mo, SpongeBob. This is the best one. Was SpongeBob? So oh. things. Uh, <laughs> So and you work on for and this on. company, which and is on and on SpongeBob's I can't, name. I can't. Really, still Sponge Robert. Still just a Sponge Robert. Nickname. But it's just a so different yes. version. And did exactly. it look Robert. exactly like Sponge That's right. Bob? Did yeah. Rob look? It was Rob, a twin of Bob, <laughs> or exactly. was he slight? Was he fraternal? Yeah. Was it an identical twin? Was he a fraternal twin? No, it was identical Good. twin. I'm sure. It would right? seem <laughs> seemed seemed identical. Go to patreon.com slash the alarmist and subscribe today. Now on to our episode. I was born with a special gift. The ability to mentally transform any situation into the worst case scenario in my own brain. My therapist calls my gift catastrophizing. And that's why I'm uniquely qualified to scrutinize and analyze history's greatest disasters and find out who's to blame. They say history repeats itself. Not on my watch. My name is Rebecca Delgado-Smith, and I am The Alarmist. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to The Alarmist, a comedy podcast where we talk about history's greatest tragedies and figure out who's to blame. Today we're discussing the theft of the Mona Lisa. Here's what you need to know. The story behind the creation of the Mona Lisa is not documented, but it is believed that around 1503, a merchant named Francesco del Giacondo commissioned Leonardo da Vinci to make a portrait of his wife, Madonna Lisa Gerardini del Giacondo. 
Madonna, a typical term for lady or missus at the time, was shortened to Mona, hence Mona Lisa. Da Vinci took years to finish the painting and officially declared it complete in 1517. It was bought shortly thereafter by King Francis I of France. While in France, it was displayed in various royal residences, finally finding its permanent home in the Louvre Museum in Paris in 1804, where it remained safely for over a hundred years. In 1911, the Louvre was one of the largest museums in the world, housing tens of thousands of paintings and employing hundreds of staff. One staff member was an Italian handyman named Vincenzo Perugia. Perugia's job was installing protective glass casings around expensive paintings. He was a failed artist with a petty crime background. On Sunday, August 10, 1911, Perugia snuck into the Louvre and hid in a utility closet. The next day was a Monday and the museum was closed. Perugia emerged from the closet, dressed in the typical white smock of the maintenance crew. He, and possibly an accomplice, took the painting and its protective glass case down off the wall and lugged it to a stairway. There, he removed it from its casing and hid it under his uniform. He tried to exit, but couldn't get through a locked door, so Perugia began to remove the doorknob with a screwdriver. At some point, he was encountered by a plumber, but Perugia stayed cool and convinced the unwitting plumber to help him exit. The maintenance crew didn't raise an alarm about the missing painting, as it was typical for a painting to be removed for upkeep or to be photographed. It wasn't until the next day that the museum became aware that the masterpiece was stolen when an artist who painted replicas of famous works inquired of its whereabouts. The casing and frame were discovered in the stairwell, and the hunt for the missing work of art began. The media went into a frenzy, and the French were humiliated. Crowds gathered at the Louvre, wanting to see the blank wall where the Mona Lisa was no longer hanging. Investigators questioned staff members, even visiting Perugia in his apartment. But they were convinced that the thief was a mastermind and quickly dismissed Perugia, even though the Mona Lisa was under his bed at the time of questioning. At one point in the investigation, Pablo Picasso was brought before the French magistrate for questioning. He had previously purchased two sculptures that had also been stolen from the Louvre. Picasso denied all charges and was eventually let go. The case went cold until two years later, when Perugia reached out to an art dealer in Italy who connected him with an art gallery director named Giovanni Poggi. The two men met with Perugia and identified the Mona Lisa. Perugia was then arrested for stealing what is now the most famous painting in the world. Fun Facts aka Death Stats It took 24 hours for security to notice the painting was missing. In the first two days after it was rehung in the Salon Carré, more than 100,000 people viewed the Mona Lisa. Today, 8 million people see the Mona Lisa every year. The Mona Lisa was the only artwork at the Louvre to have its own mailbox. The hotel where Perugia was arrested was shortly renamed by its owners to Hotel La Giaconda. A heartbroken suitor once shot himself to death in front of the Mona Lisa. King Francis I of France had the Mona Lisa hung in his bathroom. Perugia passed away on the day of his 44th birthday, 14 years after his historical robbery. The Mona Lisa entered into the Guinness Book of World Records in 1962, after it was revealed that its $100 million insurance value was the highest for any painted work. With us today, we have producer Clayton Early. Hello. Fact checker Chris Smith. Hi. And our very special guest today is host of There Are No Girls on the Internet, Bridget Todd. Hi, Bridget. Hi, I'm so excited to be here. And I also want to point out you're also the host of Next Chapters Podcasts Beef. Is That's that right? right. That yeah. is right. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your shows? Yeah, there are no girls on the internet. It's really an exploration of 
technology, social media, and internet history and culture, but through the perspective of voices and stories who are not generally centered. So mm. women, queer folks, trans folks, communities of color, uh, folks with disabilities, working folks. So often the conversation around tech is like, white tech bro billionaire, but right. what about the rest of us, right? And so <laughs> it's a show that really tries to change the conversation about who we center in technology. Um, so that's my like main kind of like main podcast. Then Beef is like my nerdy little side interest. It is all of the juiciest rivalries through history that you might not have heard of. Ooh. And the way that those rivalries and pettiness has really fueled innovation. You know, wow. we think of rivalries and pettiness as being something that we should not elevate in ourselves. Mm. But pettiness is responsible for so many different types of innovation in our in our world. So we should talk about the pettiness. Mm, yes. Competition <laughs> is good for democracy, right? It, it keeps sure is. Prices low. <laughs> yes. I love that. I love that it's just like historical beef. We sometimes we forget that people in history uh, were petty too. Oh, the pettiest. <laughs> they had the pettiest rivalries based on nothing, and then it would go on to like fuel their entire career for 30 years. <laughs> something something about the black and white photos make you feel like, oh no, they were serious. Yeah, they were no. above right. rivalries. Nope. <laughs> no. Um, okay, Bridget, we start off the show by asking our guests. What is something that's recently alarming you? What's something that's keeping you up at night? Ooh, oh God, this is like, how much time do you have? But, <laughs> well, one... like two minutes. Yeah. Okay, got it. I, I, I can keep it under two minutes. Yeah. I would say something that keeps me up at night is how quickly the conversation around AI has taken off. Like mm. it went from this thing that like, techies talked about to now it's like everybody who talks about it is like oh it's going to change your life you got to get on board it's going to take all of our jobs um and so the thing that i find alarming is not just the tech but how quickly the conversation around it has moved from you know here's this new tech to it is going to change all of our lives right. accept it get on board there is no alternative mm. where this does not happen happened very quickly i find it alarming do you, right. do you think we're overreacting like do you think people are overreacting Ooh. What a you, question. I'm I sort of because I, I do do feel like a lot of the conversation is very heightened. People oh, go, yes. they go to the worst stuff. But I well, wonder if it, we're overreacting but based on your your alarm, little alarm. Yeah, I, I don't know that I would use the word overreacting. I would say that it really serves tech billionaires if we all are in agreement that this technology that they're trying to make money off of is here to stay and that mm. we need to change our lives to fit it into our lives. Um, and so, I, you know, for so long, what was it, like five years ago, the conversation was how NFTs and Web3 was going to change everything. Yeah. Before that, it was like, oh, we're all going to have robot baristas. We're going to get mm -hmm. our pizzas delivered by drones. <laughs> you know, how, how many how many of those kind of like big predictions for the future actually came to fruition, right? Like, right. I remember when they started putting voice assistants like Siri in everybody's phones. Everybody I know has that stuff turned off. Like, nobody I know is like using that regularly. And so right, I so just think true. that we're so used to hype cycles when we talk about tech that it can be helpful to be like, well, are we just being misled by yet another tech hype cycle? Or wow. is this truly something that is going to change our lives? I love that. That's give just... it time, is what you're saying. Exactly. Like, let, let's give it a few years. Let's see if it sticks. Like, the yeah. iPhone really did stick. But I remember being. Uh, like uh, not resentful, but resistant sure. to getting a new iPhone because I loved my BlackBerry. You know, oh my god, BlackBerry! <laughs> when, you, when you were using your BlackBerry, like I remember getting my BlackBerry and feeling like every conversation I was having was like high stakes. It's like imagining myself on the hills or something, or what's that show where like there? I was imagining myself like having a high pressure job. Right. I was just texting my mom, but right. the yes. BlackBerry made it seem so important. Every Nobody knew that. They thought you were the CEO of your company texting. Right. <laughs> but I love your alarm, Bridget, because it makes me feel like in this case, perhaps the alarm is being artificially put into our brains right. from an outside yes. source. Yeah, and I so was thinking let's that be alarmed too. About, let's be alarmed about what we're being told to be alarmed about. That's a great way to put it. Exactly that. They want the conversation to be as quick as technology is advancing, or at least for us mm -hmm. to right. be moving at that same speed. Who exactly. is 
uh, who is uh, gaining anything from the alarm, right? Oh, uh, Sam Altman, the <laughs> CEO of, uh, open, right. of uh, open AI yeah. and mm-hmm. maker right. of ChatGPT, like people who want to make money off of AI, people exactly. who want to sell you courses on this information that you're going to have to need if you want to get a job using AI, like plenty of people are making money from it, but yeah. we're all losing when the conversation turns into like a hype cycle that we just buy into. Sure. Oh, so I love it. Bridget's telling us to sort of take a sort of three quarter to sideways glance and neither smile <laughs> nor frown at the incoming technology. Does that remind you of anything? Yeah, Almost indifference. Try to stay Ooh. neutral. Try to stay neutral. Just like uh, just like the Mona Lisa. Pablo Picasso. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I was just gonna see how oh. far how long. Oh, okay. <laughs> that was I a masterful how transition. Long you were gonna think I didn't get that you were feeding me a transition. <laughs> it's just you didn't look at me. Mona Lisa is out of the building, guys. <laughs> she is. She's out. And we have so many things to put up on the board, shockingly, because this first of all. I just want to point out how big this news story was in 1911. It was, I don't know. It was like the Titan. It was the submersible. You know, it it was probably one of the stories that just everyone couldn't stop reading about. You couldn't get enough content about it. It really shook. Crime of the century. Yeah, it really was. Something I find really interesting is that the Mona Lisa wasn't even, I mean, it was a popular painting. People knew about it. It was referenced. It was a famous piece of art, but it wasn't the Mona Lisa until it was stolen. Right. Hmm. You know, like it wasn't no, it's something that people would line up at the Louvre for until it was stolen. Is that true? Yes. I didn't realize that. I mean, it was, don't get me wrong. Like people were like, the Mona Lisa is really cool. Yeah. She's like glossy or something something about the paint that uh da vinci used on the mona lisa made it seem like her eyes were real very realistic Mm -hmm, i guess mm -hmm. because he used he didn't use acrylic paint he used like a glossier paint sure and it it it, it, the way the light reflected on it it made you feel like her smirk kind of changed and that Mm. was what was so cool about it so it was well known as a, a masterpiece, but it wasn't. I, I would say I'm going to go out on a limb here and say the Mona Lisa is probably the most famous painting. I mean, yeah, it's up, it's up there. It's <laughs> top contender for sure. What's more famous off the top of your head that you know the name of this painting? Sistine Chapel. Yeah, the Sistine Chapel but that's comes a, to mind. Yes. I mean, it's a huge, that's more like a mural, I guess. But yes. like it's, you know, it's one of those that people would list. Or like a starry night, but maybe maybe that's not as ubiquitous as I think. Starry night's up there because it's up there. But I think the Mona Lisa is still. Yeah, no, it's the most famous. More famous. Yeah, for sure. Especially the one where she's smoking a a joint. (laughs) That's my favorite version. version Yeah. Every dorm, (laughs) every dorm room wall. Exactly. (laughs) Well, let's start off by putting. I, everyone thinks I'm going to put the main guy, Vincenzo, but I think we should start off by putting the museum's plumber up on the board. Okay. Okay. This is from history. At, at around 7.15 a.m., he emerged clad in a white apron, the same garment worn by the museum's employees. After this is checking, Vincenzo who, who emerged. Yes. Yeah. After checking to see if the coast was clear, the thief strode up to the Mona Lisa, plucked it off the wall, and carried it to a nearby service stairwell, where he removed its wooden canvas from a protective glass frame. The lone hitch in the thief's plan came when he tried to exit the stairwell into a courtyard. Finding the door locked, he placed the Mona Lisa, now wrapped in a white sheet, on the floor and tried to take apart the doorknob. He made little progress before one of the Louvre's plumbers appeared in the stairwell. Rather than apprehending him, however, the plumber took the man for a trapped co-worker and assisted him in opening the door. Oh, no. With a friendly thank you, the thief... Uh, made his getaway. Just a few moments later, he waltzed out of the Louvre with one of the world's most valuable paintings tucked underneath his apron. So this is just a guy who ran into the thief and 
and wanted to be nice. <laughs> What's amazing about that to me is that the the guy, Vincenzo, who we'll talk about, went to all this trouble to like plan out the theft, but didn't maybe like walk out the exit of it. Like <laughs> you didn't think about how I'm going to get a painting through the door. Can we talk about like, I've always thought the the career path of art theft, art thief is mm -hmm. like a fancy, a fancy gentleman thief, like slinking <laughs> <Sure>. in. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's so highbrow. It's highbrow thievery. Exactly. <laughs> Very fancy. Um, I didn't know that uh, art theft is like the number three th theft. <laughs> okay. I'm not kidding. What do you mean? Worldwide or in, yes. in the theft industry? <laughs> <laughs> yes, in the theft industry, it's I believe drugs are first. <laughs> okay. Or so, you like know, smuggling. Yes, and then art theft is number three. This is what's uh, number two? Do you know? I, know? I can't remember. I got it. I'm okay, okay, coming great. up with it. Okay. Well, I'm 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 looking up stolen items just sort of in the world. I'm asking Chat GPT. Oh. Should we put saying, the <laughs> art is five, but it's it's cars, electronics, jewelry, cash. And then art. So I guess okay. in terms of just objects, I see it comes after maybe elect cars, electronics, and jewelry, and then mm -hmm. it's art. So it's wanted. <laughs> Should we put the theft industry on the board? Oh, the fact that I think it belongs existed. up there. <laughs> yes, the theft industry. <laughs> Humans getting handsy. I mean, like we we have mm. the the mm. we have this. Mm -hmm, ridiculous mm -hmm. look don't uh, touch yes kind of yes why do you need the art why can't you just look at it in a picture well, or go to the museum why do you need it in your house about art in mm -hmm. general right like why does art like should should private should art be in private homes like when you're <laughs> when you when you buy art and put it in just your house um are you you know are you being true to the sort of purpose of the of the art itself they got bansky over here mm. challenging the very nature of what is art True. uh no i mean it's just are you like, saying we, we should only put replicas privately owned art has always been very strange to me what if you commission the artist to do it for you specifically which a lot of the i mean like this painting yeah, was, was i think that, that's by... different but i think the majority of art is bought sort of secondhand or or you know not secondhand obviously but you know, is, is sort of, it's, it's like a historical item. Mm -hmm, it's a, yeah. it's an antique or something that was painted, you know, decades or centuries in some cases ago. Yeah. I used to have jobs as like personal assistants to people who were very wealthy, a mm -hmm. terrible job, but a big sure. part of it, like art is a big way that wealthy people invest mm -hmm. their wealth, hoard yeah, right. their wealth, um, exchange their wealth with like not a lot of government or state scrutiny mm. um and so it does like it, it, i see what you're sort of asking what is the nature of art should we just accept that it's just a way that wealthy people transfer their wealth without right. uncle sam really getting their mm -hmm. hands in it like mm -hmm. is that is that why these paintings were made in the first place or should there be some sort of public good to the way that these paintings are housed and stored and the ownership around them i i get what you're asking i think it's a valid yeah. question yeah i think that's interesting yeah, i think ahead, that's interesting in the sense that what you're saying of, I mean, the art, like an artist would probably tell you, like, I, I'm doing this not so wealthy people can transfer their money, whatever. They're doing like, this is for my artistry. But what's interesting about that is the value that we decide to place in a certain art piece, right? Because, mm -hmm. I mean, it's all just like, it's kind of arbitrary for some reason that this Mona Lisa, for whatever reason, is the most famous painting and its insurance value was like the highest in the world. It's like, it could be any old art piece, but I like this like kind of sinister thing that it's like almost put upon by the elites to hide well, their wealth. <laughs> I think I think a big part of why the Mona Lisa is is the most valuable piece is because of this moment in time where it was actually stolen. How do, do we put of that the, on the board? The history right, right. So there's behind it. Yeah, right. Well there was and it, it received full page ads in terms of advertising, right? Yeah. When, when it was <laughs> when it was published that it was stolen. So and that, also someone deciding that that's the one that they want to steal raises right. its value. Mm. It's wild how like yeah. the controversy of being stolen makes it like you were saying it wasn't really that big of a deal as a painting before it was stolen. And that controversy and scandal around it is what made it the Mona Lisa. Right. Yeah. 
Well, sh- we can't go on without putting Vincenzo up on the board. Perugia. <laughs> Vincenzo. So there's, you know, let's see here. CNN said he seemed to have genuinely been convinced he would be heralded as a national hero and genuinely dismayed to discover he wasn't, said Charney, adding uh, he was maybe a few pickles short of a sandwich, but not a lunatic. Wow, (laughs) CNN, fighting words. Um, (laughs) New York Times wrote, for his part, Perugia would become a national hero in Italy when Da Vinci's missing masterpiece was finally found. Grateful Italians embrace the hero thief <laughs> as Italy's Don Quixote, uh, R.A. Scotti, wrote in Vanished Smile, the mysterious theft of the Mona Lisa. Even now, Perugia's motivation is unproven. Details of the spectacular theft are still sketchy, but this, mu- this much appears to be known. By the early 20th century, Da Vinci's 1506 half-portrait of the Florentine noblewoman, Lisa del Giocondo, Mona Lisa, uh, Mona suggesting noble or aristocratic in Italian. The wife of a silk merchant was already one of the most famous paintings in the world. Another more romantic version also also exists. Perugia thought the Mona Lisa resembled a woman he loved in his youth who died in an avalanche and stole the painting in the memory of this young woman. (laughs) (laughs) A story chronicled in the 1931 film, The Theft of the Mona Lisa. So romantic. Very romantic yeah. and very made up. Sure. <laughs> uh, his skill was that they would, he and his company, I don't think it was even his company. I think he just worked for this company. They, they put those glass frames, protective frames on top of these very valuable paintings. And that's why he was allowed into the museum. And that's how he got to know the museum. He wasn't an employee at the time, but he had been, I believe, like something like three months earlier. Hmm. So I really do think that his whole thinking behind stealing the Mona Lisa was out of pure profit. And they believe that he chose this particular painting because it's particularly small. It's Hmm. actually not Mm -hmm. a huge painting. And it was something that he could put under his probably, apron or right. probably whatever. wasn't even that hard to paint honestly <laughs> i could probably I mean, do it we could probably do it like between the take four a few of classes us, like a weekend, we can probably figure it out has anyone seen it in real life i have yeah. seen it yeah. yes mm-hmm. it's very it's, it's like yours have to stand so far back there's like a gate yeah. there's glass it's like it's, it's very strange experience like it is such a big lead up there's huge crowds I know. a little anticlimactic a bit i would say the but, other uh, museum honestly, leading now, to the louvre is like amazing i mean that museum oh is God. incredible yeah but now get- that we know the story i think it's even more and in- now I-, I wish i had known about the theft before i had gone to see the mona lisa it's a little bit like <laughs> you know when you go when you're like out in this downtown whatever city you're in and there's like that rope around the club and there's like 60 people standing outside and it's like that must be a cool club and then you get into the club and there's only like five people inside and they're like holy you know it's like there's a lot of pomp and circumstance i'm not saying this is not to diminish the painting it is an incredible painting but to the point of like sometimes things seem arbitrary like it's cool because we are making it cool because we're making it like so hard to access or seem so exclusive well bridget really set the tone when she's when she her little alarm was about hype because that's Ooh. basically i mean that's True. basically what this whole thing is it's mm-hmm. it's hype the mona lisa uh, hype cycle the mona lisa oh, hype let's cycle. Put it on, on the board, board. love that <laughs> it was going strong in 1911 and it's still going strong now chris can you look up how, uh, the actual size of the mona lisa that's a great question and what while he does that let's put the louvre director up on the board his name is jean theophile Hamel. And this is from the New York Times. Jean Theophile Hamel, the director of National Museums, who was on vacation when the Mona Lisa vanished, scoffed at the notion that the painting could have been stolen and must have at worst been misplaced. You might as well pretend, he said, that one could steal the towers of Notre Dame. He was fired. So the guy thought apparently it was very common for art to be taken off of the wall at the Louvre and being taken to another room to get photographed. No one had to sign 
paintings out in order to do this. The photographers didn't have to request for a painting uh, to, to be able to just take pictures of it. So there was a lot of confusion initially about why the painting was missing. It was like, it's you know, check the photographer's room, check over here. It's possible that it's misplaced. But clearly this guy had a very laid back attitude. So the, the dimensions of the Mona Lisa mm -hmm. is roughly 19 inches by like 27 inches. Oh, so it's small. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's got, so, a, is that including the frame? That's not the frame, right? And that's, I don't think that's the frame. No. Right. I mean, the no. frame adds some, but it's, yeah, it's pretty, it's not a big thing. He took it off the frame though. Like oh, he, he took did. it off the, yeah. So it's, and yeah, yeah. So it would be really small under his little cloak. Or yeah, his he could have damaged it. Yeah. I mean, it's just like under an apron, just like the raw painting, or was there was nothing protective over it? I mean, nothing. Well, he took a, a, a he, he blanket or the, something. He like brought a, it into the, oh, oh. You he he about, wrapped it in a. In uh, the museum, though, there yeah. was a glass case around it that he knew how to get, get it out of. Yes. Um, but should we put um, uh, size and mobility up on the board? Maybe that was Paintings the reason why he... Paintings should be big. Well, I just mean that Difficult was, to transport. Yeah, well, I mean, it would make it... Uh, probably make it less famous, actually. But, I mean, sure. if, we're, if we're blaming why the Mona Lisa got uh, lifted, maybe it was sure. the size of it. It's size, for sure. Exactly. Why not? While we're in the because he was security. a small man too. Yes, by the way. yes, he was. A, he was very short, five three. Everyone keeps saying he was so short, which no, I'm way just, shorter than five. I didn't say he was so short. <laughs> it was a small man. Five three counts as a small man. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's, yeah. that's accurate. <laughs> Let's put the uh, the lack of museum security. Oh yes, uh, right. So the this is from the collector. Um, Vincenzo Perugia could walk freely throughout the gallery after opening hours. And it was his, it was this unfiltered access to the gallery that allowed him to steal the painting. There was little in place during the 20th century to stop criminals from taking priceless works of art off the walls or even out of the glass cabinets. Another man named Joseph Gary Pire had already proved this by pocketing small ancient artifacts unseen from the museum's display and selling them to his friends, a blatant act of theft. <laughs> this is from Smitho uh, Smithsonian Magazine. As soon as the painting was stolen in 1911, conspiracy theories sprouted up. Was it a hoax? Some said the theft was the French government's way of trying to distract public opinion from uprisings in colonial West Africa. Mm. A few months before the painting was found, the New York Times speculated that the Louvre restorers had botched a re restoration job of the Mona Lisa. To cover this up, the museum concocted the story of an outlandish theft. Mm. This is from CNN. It was 24 hours before anyone even noticed the Mona Lisa was missing. With artworks often removed to be photographed or cleaned, the Louvre had over 400 rooms, but only 200 guards and even fewer on duty overnight, said Charney, founder of the Association of Research into Crimes Against Art. There were basically no alarms in play. It was under secure. But to be fair, most museums were at the time. So 1911... Not, not a, you don't have the ring camera. No, this is like when you hear about crimes being committed in the 70s and it was like, well, we had no idea who it was. So like, right. It's 1975. Like, what are you going to do? Seriously. <laughs> it's kind of like, say, lovey, oh, well. <laughs> Such a different time. Now, now it's like when, yeah, when you go to any on, museums with art, but anywhere with anything important. If there's so much digital surveillance around it's it's the idea that it was just like an honor system anybody can go in it's really hard to <laughs> right. wrap your head around yeah like the, the movie cameras just the honor system <laughs> the movies of like art theft today to bridget's point earlier about it being like such a cool person's like job it's like the movies that reflect that today are like so high tech and you're dancing through labor lasers and like you know yeah. breaking through walls and like back then it was just like <laughs> someone walks into the room and takes it and leaves it's a really un <laughs> uneventful scene kind of boring actually yeah. if you i mean he knew what he was doing it was the day it was uh the museum was closed it was there were a lack of guards he he literally hid in a closet either, uh, you know, until it was the right time overnight. And then he just walked out and just bloop, took it out 
walked hmm. away with it. <laughs> I know. I, I, I wonder if they check the closets now at the Louvre before they close up every night. <laughs> I'll, I can assure you they don't. That place is massive. <laughs> it's huge. I know. It's so big. It's so, it's so big. <laughs> they don't have to because as soon as you walk out, you're going to hit some laser and every alarm would go off, you know? They don't need right. to. I'd be curious yeah. about the security measures at the Louvre. It's probably a, g- a good case study. Yeah. Especially Ooh. for the alarmy. Mm-hmm. Well, or you, you look into it and you're like, actually, I feel like I could rob this place. <laughs> their security's not so good. Yeah, they're probably not that open about their security. No. <laughs> it's true. We have to put the police up on the board as well, because this was a totally botched job. And this is from Crime Wire. Police even interviewed Perugia, but decided he wasn't smart enough to pull off so brazen a crime. Mm-mm. At one point, there were 60 detectives on the case, but they ran into nothing but dead ends. Okay? So they went, they interviewed him. They were like, this is probably done by a sophisticated criminal. There's no way this Vincenzo guy right. <laughs> Too could have pulled it off. <laughs> Is it just so, the French police or were there like Italian, you know, were there other like agencies involved with this high profile theft? Do we know? I think it was the French police. And okay. later on, the Italian police comes in because he's tried in Italy. Mm. So he leaves the country eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, see, This is from CNN. The French press had a field day seeing it as an opportunity to poke fun at the seemingly inept government which ran the Louvre. This was an era where newspapers were really taking off and pretty soon the theft and the image of Mona Lisa was splashed across the world. 60 detectives seek stolen Mona Lisa. French public, French public indignant, reported the New York Times. For the first time, there were queues outside the Louvre just to see the empty space where the painting had hung. Wow. <laughs> The theft launched it into becoming a household name for people who had never been to Europe and had no interest in art, said Charney, adding, and it's really just continued from there. This is again from CNN. Over the next two years, the bungling police investigation dragged on with Pablo Picasso, a suspect at one point. The force even interviewed Perugia twice before concluding he couldn't possibly be the man behind the brazen burglary but for over two years perugia had the famous woman all to himself did he fall in love with her i think so said charney (laughs) there are a number of thieves who have stolen art and have suffered a sort of reverse stockholm syndrome where the hostage taker falls in love with the hostage in this case the hostage was a work of art (laughs) right for the record the painting was kept in a, a false bottom trunk for like two years. Uh, in his house. Yes. It, oh, he, oh. he had it under the bed when the police oh, came I see. to so, interview him. There was a trunk. And but he then a, he kept gotcha. it in some trunk that had a false bottom. He wasn't even like looking, enjoying it. It was just in, hidden no. away. And he couldn't even sell it because it would give away that he, like right. it eventually did, uh, it would give away that he was the thief. I just have a question. Do we have any sense of why they thought Pablo Picasso was a suspect? Yes. So because the, the, this, um, I want to say his name was Lapine, the, the guy who was the head of the police investigation. Can you look that up? He was the, the a main detective and he was a very famous detective at the time. Like some of them called him the, uh, uh, whatchamacallit, like the Sherlock Holmes of, of, of France. And he was really into what, a, what you know, criminal like, Uh, biographies what would eventually turn into like profiling but he was like he decided that this theft would have been caused by someone who was very sophisticated and so Pablo Picasso had bought stolen head busts Mm -hmm. from a friend who had taken them from the Louvre right so they were like oh if he's done it before he's probably able to do it again Hmm. so that was the confusion with pablo picasso but he had no connection to the the mona lisa he was honestly he was really really scared when he was arrested or when he was brought into interrogation because he thought he was going to get deported and Hmm. he was just starting off in his career and he thought this was gonna really damage his reputation Hmm. right 
so that's the whole deal with Pablo Picasso. They didn't expect this sort of working class Italian guy, right? They were like, mm-hmm. oh, he's not smart enough to like outsmart Oh, I the see French. what you're saying. How about we call it Napoleon Complex? Sure. Well, he was the one oh. who put it in the, the Louvre ap- mm-hmm. after it had bounced around, I think, a little bit. This is from uh, Slate. After the theft, a French psychology professor suggested that the thief might be a sexual psychopath Hmm. who would enjoy mutilating, stabbing, defiling Mona Lisa. After Perugia's arrest, there had been a brief flare-up of patriotic Perugism in Italy, but it soon died down. Most people were disappointed in Perugia's caliber. He was more Lee Harvey Oswald than the criminal mastermind they had imagined. He was quite clearly a classic loser, said oh, Donald Sassoon. this guy. I know. I know. In his book, Becoming Mona Lisa, despite Perugia, Perugia's claim to patriotism, I am an Italian and I don't want the picture given back to the Louvre. It emerged in court that he had visited London to try to flog the painting to the dealer Duveen, who had laughed at him. The mention of this story prompted Perugia's only show of anger during the trial. This is from Time magazine. Though there's evidence that Perugia tried repeatedly to sell the picture, he always insisted that his only motive motive in stealing Mona Lisa was to return it in glory to Italy and to exact revenge for Napoleon's massive theft of artworks Mm -hmm. all across Europe. One problem. Mona Lisa had never been part of the Napoleonic plunder. Though Leonardo had begun the painting in Florence in 1503, he took it with him to France 13 years later when he resettled at the court of the French kings, the French king Francois I. After his death there in 1519, the painting passed through several hands until an eager Francois bought it for the modern equivalent of around 10 million. Oh. So it was already in France. Sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's what it, but that's what uh Vincenzo claimed that he was really bringing back this prize possession to Italy. It belonged to the Italians. The French had pretty much stolen it from them. Right. I do think there's something maybe that we don't haven't we've talked about, but it's not on the board here, but just like maybe the I don't know how to say it, but like the magnetism of Mona Lisa, like there is something about her that is undeniably um, captivating and Mm. makes people want to possess it, you know, capture. Mm. I like that. There's something about possessing the Mona Lisa that (laughs) makes... Possession? Yes, that's upsetting and also makes sense. Maybe you feel like you're the one who can make her smile, like fully smile. (laughs) (laughs) That's what Chris, Chris would hang the Mona Lisa up on his... Crack uh, jokes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Maybe she likes prop comedy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, one of the things I read in my research was that... Uh, yeah, she was like bored because, you know, they had to sit there for these long hours while mm-hmm. they were being painted and that Da Vinci would have like entertain entertainment for her. Oh. So <laughs> and in some cases, like, yeah, prop comedy or like clowns and stuff like that. <laughs> so she might have been looking at that stuff. Maybe she's a witch. Oh, maybe she is. Okay. Or maybe she's uh, alien art. Then maybe there's something otherworldly about her that is, you know, this is where you get into the funds conspiracy theorists where it's yeah. like, yeah, she's You not think Da Vinci the, was an alien? She's he not did from know the, a lot. Right. She, you know, there's theories that some of these great artists are just from another place and they're just <laughs> dropping off some of the little gifts here for us simple humans. She is very bewitching. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the one that makes the most sense to me is that Da Vinci was time traveling. So he was like from the future, but mm. just came back pretended to know so much it was like uh i'm an inventor um (laughs) (laughs) i mean he was a true renaissance man he was the one you know what i mean like they named it after he Mm -hmm. knew he knew everything or not knew everything but he just anatomy astronomy sculpture math science biology he like did everything he really makes you feel bad about yourself and productivity in general Mm -hmm. I mean, y'all okay. are running a great podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sure. He couldn't do that. True. No, he 100% could not no. do a podcast. I totally agree. Um, we have a lot of stuff, but I, I, I want to make sure we also get Paris hangovers up on the board. Okay. Tell us. 
This is from NPR. They would have been pretty conspicuous on a quiet Monday morning. Writer and historian James Zug tells week uh, tells weekends on All Things Considered host Guy Raz. Sunday night was a big social night in Paris, he says. So a lot of people were hung over on Monday morning. The men, three Italian handymen, were not hung over, but they might have been a little tired. They just spent the night in an art supply closet. So this is actually referencing the fact that some people think Vincenzo didn't do it alone, that he had two accomplices. Hmm. The accomplices have never been charged or there's never enough evidence to say there were three of them. When the plumber came, he only saw one, right? At the door, there was only one. I think this is like, people just can't believe that this guy... <laughs> Did it alone. I know. This classic loser. <laughs> I mean, Maybe he did it to prove that he's not such a loser. Wow. Mm. Well, you know, the, I mean, we can maybe talk a little bit about why he did it. Because, you know, nationalism's up there, right? But then also Clayton brings up a good point. And, and the other thing is that he was bullied a little bit. They called Italians macaroni. Macaroni, oh, macaroni really? ears. Yeah, really? in, in, yeah. Well, it was in, in France. That's what I read. You make fun of someone with a pasta shape. That's low. Not nice. So yeah, he could have had a little chip on his shoulder. Hmm. Hmm. So do we put that up there? His bruised ego or his bruised pride? Mm -hmm. Vincenzo's... Ooh, Vincenzo's ego. I mean, if he he's clearly being told all of his life that he's not smart enough. Sure. And. That I mean, that'll that'll make you want to prove someone wrong. Hey, petty. So much of history petty. <laughs> comes about because of our petty little rivalries or yes. petty little, you know, issues Beefs. we have with mm -hmm. society. Maybe you want to prove them wrong. <laughs> so oh. then maybe it's Vincenzo's petty bone to pick with society. That belongs on the board. <laughs> so let's take a quick break and then start knocking things off the board. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have stress and anxiety we carry around as we go about our everyday life. At The Alarmist, we know it's always better to say it out loud and talk it through. Whenever I stress about the sinking of the Titanic, I don't sit with those thoughts in a dark room. I turn on the lights and dive right into it. Therapy is a great place to get things off your chest and work through what's really going on. Maybe you can't stop spiraling or catastrophizing. I started therapy over 10 years ago and never looked back. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Heck, we sometimes change our minds and rethink the verdict at The Alarmist. And that's also okay when it comes to therapists. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com Alarmist today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash alarmist. Okay, who's to blame for the theft of the Mona Lisa? 
Is it the Louvre Museum's plumber? The theft industry? Humans getting handsy? Vincenzo Perugia? The Mona Lisa hype cycle? The Louvre director Jean Theophile Omel? Uh, sorry, in advance. Mona Lisa's compact size, lack of museum security, the French police, Napoleon complex, Mona Lisa's bewitching aura, <laughs> Paris hangovers, Vincenzo's petty bone to pick with the French, or Louis Lepin. Hmm. A lot you know, of good stuff. Kind of hard to blame. These are all great contenders, but I feel like it's hard to blame anybody but the man responsible. <laughs> you make That's a good what point. I see how there's, it's a more complex issue than you might think. Yeah. Yeah. We run, we run think... into this problem every once in a while. And what you have to realize is that we have to fill out a whole podcast episode. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, These could be like two minute episodes if we really wanted to. But. <laughs> well, uh, off the bat, I'm going to say I don't think we can blame Mona Lisa's bewitching aura. I mean, that is victim blaming. It is. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I also don't think we can blame Paris hangovers because it's just, you know, it's a fun city. And can you blame that they're just having fun? Are they I having know. too much fun? There's no such thing. No I such mean, thing. people still they're get hungover in Paris now. They just have better security. Right. That's right. So they figured that out. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. I think that's what they learned from this yeah. theft. <laughs> <laughs> we need better security. I don't so think you can drinking. blame Mona Lisa's compact size because I also feel like it's a bit like victim blaming and kind of arbitrary. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the Mona Lisa hype cycle came afterward. Yeah. Although crazy that the king bought the Mona Lisa for the equivalent of like $10 million today at the time. That's a lot of money. Something I don't understand is why the king ended up with the Mona Lisa if it was commissioned by her husband. Yeah, I guess uh, I don't know the answer to that, but I guess, you know, Da Vinci could sort of be like he could he could do art like I guess what do you call that just for um, an individual or something. Mm -hmm. But if he realizes that it's good some point in the middle, he retains the right to just <laughs> sure like, it's uh, mine. This is not for you anymore. This is for me or a king. <laughs> That's not. But I would have cool been pissed if I was that merchant. Yeah, definitely. Or, uh, if you were his family, his kids. Yeah, there must be a yeah. Maybe he decided not to keep it or something. Or just... he didn't pay the 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 fee. He didn't finish um paying the fee. Maybe so they broke returned. up. No, I don't think so. <laughs> I think they were in love. Apparently, sure. not a lot is known about the Mona Lisa, uh, or or about. Mona Lisa, the person, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, other than they think she might have been in love with her husband because she didn't have a huge dowry, you know, all, mm, for all those factors. Old fashioned love tale. Yeah. He might have been saying he might have told the guy that uh, it wasn't finished because he kept mm. working on it. Sure. For That's years. That's a little sketch, Da Vinci. Maybe he was in love yeah. with Mona Lisa. Ooh, plot twist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> We're back at Mona Lisa's bewitching aura. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe it shouldn't be so quick to put it off the list. You know? <laughs> um, okay, so the Louvre director and the lack of museum security. I feel like that goes under the Louvre director, right? Under yeah. Louis Lupin? No, no. no uh, Jean oh, the director. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. Yes, so, you know, you're running the, the whole... Show. Yeah, so take that off, throw that into him. Yeah. Napoleon complex. That's like na hinting towards na the nationalism aspect of it as well. Right. Which we don't um, have nationalism up on the board. Ooh, we should. Yes. There Vincenzo's petty bone to pick with the French. <laughs> Seems I a like little, it. I mean, that's also us speculating. I feel like we can't yes. really lean into that, but to I mean, Bridget's petty points. Say, <laughs> yeah. I, I like love it. the petty. <laughs> but like he did say that that was the reason he had stolen it, mm. that it was because he believed that the, the French shouldn't own it. It was, it was the Italians. I mean, it goes, goes back, back to the to, whole Da Vinci thing too. That Why feels like did Da Vinci own it? Yeah. yeah. Right. 
Yes, I agree. Uh, Louis Lapine, he uh, goes, he falls into the French police. He's going to after the fact, though, right? Like, I mean, the, he no, didn't he was cause... he was leading the investigation, right? But like, not very well. <laughs> no, exactly. You can't blame him for the theft because he oh. wouldn't be leading the theft if the investigation <laughs> if there was no theft in the first place, right? That's true. That's true. We could slap him for his poor, poor policing. Poor policing, but I feel like there's better culprits for the big slap. Okay. Vincenzo still up on the board. Humans getting handsy in the theft industry. I feel like you fold those into like Vincenzo. Vincenzo? Yeah. yeah. Mm. I also don't think we can blame the poor plumber. No, poor guy. No, we have to assume that he didn't see the painting and and just sort of helped a guy get he's get like out a, of a building. Yeah, he helped a, a nice. He's a nice guy. He helped an employee who was <laughs> having a hard time getting through a door. I mean, yeah, yeah. Seems like a nice oh. guy. I always feel so bad for those characters in history who are just trying to like they don't know they're actually aiding into some like right. thing that's going to be very historical where it's like oh your mistake was actually kind of a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, there's a uh there's a Forrest Gump quality to uh Yes, <laughs> the plumber. To the plumber. He's <laughs> trying to be a good citizen. Oh, it's just kind of in the wrong place, the wrong time. Yes. <laughs> oh, I love him. <laughs> Well, so we still have Vincenzo up on the board. We have the Louvre director. We have the French police. We have Napoleon complex. And we have nationalism. I feel like Napoleon complex can fold into Vincenzo. Sure. And, hmm, here's what I'm thinking. We send Vincenzo to the alarmist jail. And we slap the french police what are you thinking bridget i see you i think that (laughs) sounds right to me i think (laughs) okay he's got to be in jail french police i I don't want to let him off the hook like they like this is they had a role in this obviously um yeah i agree they could have caught him like right away they interviewed him multiple times yeah too busy (laughs) looking at picasso yeah real the real villain was right there Yes. So I guess you fold nationalism into Vincenzo then. Yeah. And and you fold, I guess the Louvre director, he just gets off the hook for this. Just get, yeah. He, he was fired. So he, maybe he's time served. He he paid his price. (laughs) (laughs) Don't mess up like that. You'll get fired. Okay. I'm going to call it. Is this, are the, is this, as Vincenzo going into our new wing? Um, into the new Catherine, cook wing of of the jail your it's your call well yes i feel like charles and camilla have had it it's you know have been, been there them. just alone yeah they for need a some long company. time it's a little too cush <laughs> so let's throw vincenzo in with what a threesome yeah. i can't i can't wait to see like what the conversation is like during meal time mm-hmm. between the three of them <laughs> okay i'm gonna call it the French police, you're getting the big slap. Vincenzo Perugia, you're going to the alarmist jail. Say hi to Charles and Camilla. <laughs> <laughs> um, Bridget, I mean, thank you so much for joining us and helping us get to the bottom of who's to blame for the theft of Mona Lisa, of the Mona Lisa. Oh, it was the pleasure was all mine. Anytime I can help put a not so fancy, sophisticated art thief behind bars where they belong. I'm in. <laughs> yes, That's I love right. an art thief that bucks the trend. Yeah, mm-hmm. classic loser. <laughs> yes, I'm gonna use that as an insult from now on. Classic loser. You know what I mean. <laughs> In the aftermath, Vincenzo Perugia was tried in Italy and in his defense stated that he only wanted to repatriate the masterpiece. While it was a hit in the Italian press, the jury still found him guilty. He was sentenced to time served and he went free after the trial. 
Later, Perugia would move back to France, and it is said that he opened his own art studio. He died at age 44. The Alarmist is now on Patreon. Subscribe and get ad-free content along with bonus episodes. Go to patreon.com slash thealarmist or check out the link in our show description. Visit our website, www.thealarmistpodcast.com and follow us on Instagram, at thealarmistpodcast and on Twitter, at alarmistthe. You can also send us your thoughts via email to thealarmistpodcast at gmail.com. Today's episode was produced and engineered by Clayton Early with editing by Molly Hockey and fact-checking by Chris Smith. Thank you to our associate producer and researcher, Crystal Dinsberg. The Alarmist is executive produced by Rebecca Delgado-Smith. Tune in next week. We'll be discussing... Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Sing the tragic life of Blanche Monnier. The Alarmist. Powered by ACAST.